How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. <laughs> it's the best thing. Mark, I'm, it's so good to have you here, Mark. So fun. How are things going? Things are great. Tonight. Tonight. We're going to come back to this opiate theme. We are. Right? An interesting story I saw on the news yesterday Yeah, that the city of Philadelphia has sued some of the opiate manufacturers. I love that. Yeah, it's time, huh? It's it time. is time. So what are they, I didn't read the story, tell me. I, I didn't read it either. Uh, I saw it flash up on the, on the TV screen and I thought, wow, this is great. Hopefully we're gonna have a rush of class actions. Hopefully we're gonna get attorney generals involved. Hopefully a lot of things are gonna happen to stop this. I mean, we've talked about it, Joe. Uh, um, one of the shows I wanted to do was kind of take some shots at Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw that 60 Minutes uh, series about um, the DEA and the whistleblowers and the the, uh, the fact that they were trying to take down some of the distribution channels. What, uh, McKeeson, I think, yeah. is the company. So it's nice to see that things are going in that direction so that we can start to kind of close the door on this epidemic. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if we could say it was just Big Pharma, then it would be simple, but it's not. Right. It's really not. I mean, Big Pharma is, is part of it. I mean, they, they have to produce these medications. They're meant to be used as medicines. But you're right. If, if you know that something is potentially addictive or harmful, it's probably more ethical to say that. Right. You know? And they're really, you know, the opioid medications, they're really good for people who really need them. Because right. we don't want to deprive people who are in true chronic pain of these medications. That, that is also unethical. But shipping millions of pills to a small rural yeah. pharmacy in yep. a certain town, we've got to be able to stop that. Right. It's, it's a little unusual to need like half a million. Was it, it was probably more than that, a Percocet for a town of like 2,000. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's awful. Yeah. So tonight... But tonight, we've got two guests. We have two wonderful guests. First, we have Jennifer Cantwell, who is here, who has started the Marshfield Facts, and it's a wonderful, wonderful organization. And we're going to have Jennifer, like, you want want me to call you Jen? Yeah, Jen. Jen is better. Jen is going to tell us a bit about Marshfield Facts. And we also have, and I, this is just so thrilling because we were were just talking to Chuck, who was, you know, and and Greg in, in the veteran's voice. And they say, oh, who's your guest here? We say, it's Katie and it's Marini. And they said, what? The Katie Marini? of uh, 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 The one who wrote like the story of the Red Tail And the guy said, yeah, I, I, I read that story. That's an incredible story. So Katie, who we're so, so pleased to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Put the mic right up to your there, Katie, so that we can, because I want to catch every word. Is that right, Larry? That did a good job? Larry's happy with me today. That's good. <laughs> Doesn't always happen. So what's so, facts? So yeah, Marshfield facts. Jen, tell so us about that. Marshfield facts is a uh, is Marshfield's community coalition for substance use prevention, and community coalition sounds like kind of a 
catch-all phrase, but we're actually trying to structure ourselves in a very specific way. Our long-term goal is to qualify for a federal grant, the Drug-Free Communities Grant. Uh, in order to do that, you are required to structure yourself in a very specific way. And one of the requirements is to engage 12 sectors of your community. Wow. So we uh, meet monthly with representatives from law enforcement and the schools and media and business, parents, youth. And you know, when you bring those people together, uh, everybody brings their own perspective and, and their own resources. So mm -hmm. people bring ideas and they bring, um, you know, we're very, we've been very fortunate to get funding from the North Community Church annual rib cook-off and from Kiwanis. Kiwanis has been very generous to fund us. So you know, well, some people Kiwanis bring is, money, some people bring ideas, yeah. uh, time, you know, and, um, and we're focused on preventing substance use in Marshfield's youth. That's yeah. our primary goal. Yeah. Through awareness? Raising awareness. There's actually seven strategies, but okay. awareness is the first, and training and reducing obstacles or increasing access to mm -hmm. resources, uh, support, and, and you strategy. Have quite a big coalition. I mean, you've got a lot of people who are really involved in this, and I, I hope listeners are aware of it. How, how can they get in touch with, with you, Jen, and join Marshall Facts? The best way to... Uh, find out more about facts is really to find us on Facebook, yeah. Marshfield Facts on Facebook. We, that's where we post uh, updates. And then um, come to a, a meeting if you'd like. Our meetings are uh, usually the third or fourth Monday of the month. We alternate between afternoon and evening meetings to try to make it convenient for different folks. Mm -hmm. And um, our next meeting is this coming Monday, which will feature Katie Marini. And that <laughs> is part of why we have both of them here. So before I get to Katie, Jen, tell us what is happening on Monday. So we're having a book reading or what was actually uh, happening? Monday Monday is our Marshall Facts Open Coalition meeting. We're having at the library, the Ventress Memorial Library, 7 p.m. And we're going to start off with actually a short, about a 30-minute presentation on vaping. From oh. Tracy Wojciechowski, from Karen. Hmm. Uh, she's a fantastic presenter, uh, very knowledgeable on the topic. Uh, vaping is a hot topic in Marshfield right now. And then we're going to do about an hour with Katie. Katie's going to give us a, a presentation about the book. And, um, and then we will be raffling off copies of the book. And Katie will have discounted uh books available for sale mm -hmm. in the library. We donated some books to the library, so there'll be some available to check out from the library. And Katie, will you be able to sign these books? Sure. <laughs> I just, so it's a great introduction. Katie, we're so glad you're here. Tell us, tell us about, about the book. So um, my sister struggled with heroin, started off with pills, like so many people, back around the year 2003, 2004, when she graduated high school. It was pretty immediate. There was not a lot of support back then. There was a ton of shame. There was a huge amount of stigma, even more than there is now. So we really did not talk about it with anyone outside of the family. We didn't have a lot of places to turn to for help. We didn't really know what to do. So we just did the best we could. But we handled it as a family, and we 
still feel that we did the best that we could with what we were given. It's a very, very hard thing to deal with. It was very hard for her to deal with. She did not know that she was going to turn into a heroin addict by taking, you know, a few pills at a graduation party or, you know, the things that teenagers do and did when these pills from the pharmaceutical companies, they are new. These are, you know, created pills that are fairly new and people didn't know a lot about them. They went out there and a lot of people were kind of blindsided. So that's how it started for her. They weren't prescription. She didn't have a prescription for them. But she said a million times, if I had known, I never would have done that if I had known. She had great dreams and aspirations. She was very beautiful. Um, We have pictures of her in the back. And, um, you know, she she couldn't get out of it. So it was a it was a huge downward spiral, and there is so much more that goes along with it that happened over those ten years that we unfortunately had to witness and learn about and go through with her because we loved her and she wanted help and she wanted to get better. So you know, when people are crying out for that, you want to give it to them as their family. It's very hard to establish boundaries and to learn all that with them. It's not something that we knew how to handle. So she went through all of that along with, you know, the the bad relationships and the homelessness and, you know, you lose your job and you can't pass a quarry and you have to do time and you're in and out of rehab and it's very, very difficult. And then she did end up passing away in 2014 from an overdose, which was the same year that fentanyl hit the streets. We now know that's when everything changed and the overdoses got um, more and more frequent for people. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, during all that time, she always retained her love of music, her love of books. She would read huge novels. She was incredibly intelligent. She was always kind-hearted. We even found letters back and forth that she was writing to other people in rehab while she was in there trying to encourage them and support them. She would write me poems, and I would write her poems back. It was something we always shared was a love of writing. So after she passed away about a year later, I kind of found all of her poems and letters that I had kept in a box in my room and decided I wanted to publish them to keep them for her and you know I didn't know if someone else would find them and try and do the same so I wanted to copyright them and as I was trying to figure out in what fashion to copyright them I just started kind of writing our story around them and everything just kind of fell into place and after talking with my family and everything we decided we really had learned a lot and we should share it with people and kind of put it all out there so that other people could learn from it or get support from it or you know it could open up doors for people to talk to each other families kids parents Um, about things that we didn't talk about growing up. It just wasn't something that came up at the dinner table. No one talked about heroin. No one ever. And it's a very courageous thing to be able to do, to talk about this. And this is part of what we're really trying to do tonight because it takes courage to be able to say, I have a need. You know, human beings sometimes are are very reluctant to show that side of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know the the thing that I like to say is this is this is not about morality. This is about mortality. Unfortunately, we had to we had to have an opioid crisis and epidemic in order to make people aware of this. But now we are finally, I hope, doing something, and we're really moving away from this the stigma and the morality. I mean, come on, folks. The brain is the brain is the brain. It's going to seek certain pleasures with no idea that. Sometimes you get addicted and it's not, it is not pleasurable anymore. I have seen this, you know, this is part of what I do is, you know, as the, the chief of the adolescent programs for High Point, I mean, we work with kids who, as you say, Katie, they had never, no intention of getting addicted. No intention. 
Right. So what would you, how would you like to proceed? Would you like to read so something I think for that us? is an important point because um, I can say that, like for my sister, she had no intention ever. And she was still my sister. So when you grow up with someone, you're that close to them, you would do anything for them. And to see them suffer like that is so hard. But at the same time, when the families go through this and we say to them, okay, well, here's the help. You know, you extend your hand to them and you want them to just take it. We have to understand that to them, they either may not think they need that kind of help or they could be in denial or it's scary to them because by the time my sister passed away for a third of her life, she had been an addict. So, you know, when you think that the first 10 years, she's a small child, she doesn't even really remember. And then, so she really only had a few years of life aside from being addicted and from, you know, living the double life and the sneaking and the lying and the covering up and the feeling shame and the trying to rebuild. So um, it's very, very difficult. And I think everyone has their own path and trying to stand by them on their path, even when it's not yours, can yeah. be a whole other challenge. And, and it can feel, I mean, what I'm hearing is it can feel like somebody saying, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem. I don't need the help. And I think a family member may say, but it's so evident that you do. And, you know, we actually have a lot of literature and research to back this up. Mm -hmm. Part of the brain that's involved in insight is what's called the prefrontal cortex. It's, it's right behind your forehead. And we actually know that that part of the brain becomes overwhelmed by the limbic system, this emotional, irrational part of the brain. And actually, it is true that some people have no idea Right. That they have a problem. Right. They just And it, we also know that as human beings we go into fight or flight. Yeah. You know, and if you don't get them right at the right time, they can want to run instead yeah. of fight because it's a fight. They have to really fight. They're gonna detox. It's gonna be horrible. Yeah. You know, and then then what? Then right. what do they do? So even just thinking about that is overwhelming. So I'll redo a poem that my sister had written kind of about all of this. Wonderful. Um, it says if I could just live by their mottos, my life would be just fine. Let go and let God in one day at a time. I've got a devil on my left shoulder and an angel on my right. I need to shake the devil off of me, and I'll try with all my might. But it's not going to be easy, of this I am quite sure. For this disease that I am up against isn't known to have a cure. My love affair with this poison has made a prisoner of me. I've tried to run so many times, but it just won't set me free. My guilt haunts my dreams. My heart is filled with shame. I'm always looking for excuses instead of taking any blame. At first, I loved the thrill. I was a fool for the euphoric charms, but I turned into a monster sticking needles in my arms. Friends and family always wondering, will I ever be saved? Never satisfied with my performance or the way that I behaved. I've missed so much time. I hope I can make it up to them now, but I'm unsure they even want me to and unsure that I know how. If they say that life's a gift, then mine is yet to be unwrapped. I have to search my soul for the real me and try to bring her back. I want to stay clean this time and I'll try so very hard, but it's hard to leave it all behind me when I'm living with these scars. There's never enough sorries I could say, no way to change the past. I'm chasing demons from my head and praying I'll find peace at last. It's pretty yeah, deep. I, I, yeah, I think we should just like let that sink in for a moment because it's so profound. What part of her journey was she on when she was writing that? That, I believe was, I took all the dates out for the book, but I would say at that point she was about seven years in. Mm. So she had tried and failed and tried and failed. And, you know, it's hard to get back up when you keep getting knocked down. And she spent about half of the 10 years that she struggled in recovery and about half 
actively using. So she tried very, very hard, very hard. And um, she was just very tired by the end. You know, she was just very, I think, beaten down from everything that had happened to her. I started saying there was a lot of things that go along with the addiction. So, of course, by then, um, she had had hepatitis and she'd had blood clots. She'd been septic. She'd been um, going into liver failure. She'd been in the hospital quite a few times. She had been beaten up pretty bad quite a few times. So there was a lot of trauma that had happened. Um, you know, she had slept outside in the freezing cold a few nights. It's just a lot of things, I think, in her mind. And when the bad starts to outweigh the good, they start to not want to fight anymore. And that's when it gets really sad and really scary. Back then, a lot of the, the sober living homes and the places that we had weren't as good as they are now. They didn't have the research. They didn't have the staff. They didn't have the facilities. So it was hard to leave her in a lot of those places and to be encouraging, you know, just stay here. Everything will be fine. And you're looking around like, my gosh, is she going to get robbed as soon as we leave? You know, what's going to happen here? We've come so far in a lot of that. I think a lot of the stuff we have now is so much better. We still have a long way to go because the population that we're dealing with here is just, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to our resources that we have, hospitals, you know, halfway houses, whatever they are. Um, we don't understand it fully. And the brain is always changing and everyone's different. So it's just a really individual disease. Yeah, this is very powerful stuff. So how did you manage this? I mean, here you are, the, the big sister. You love your sister. Can you tell our listening audience, because I'm sure many folks are going through this. Yeah. Well, it's very hard. And I think, um, so I'm in my mid-30s, and I think especially for people my age, because we're kind of in the thick of it. I graduated just a touch ahead of, it seemed like right behind me was this huge sweep of the pills coming in. And luckily, I never got caught up in that. I kind of went the opposite direction, went to nursing school and became the caregiver. So I think for a lot of us, we go through this, but we look back where things change so much drastically in a short period of time with technology and the iPhones and social media. And, you know, when I was in high school, they didn't have any of that. And then it seemed to have come within the next five years right after. So we look back on our childhood as completely different than what people have now. So it's a, it's a very stark contrast. I had um, read Jen a few pages in here when I had looked back on all the things and how different things were. Uh, can I read it? Just oh, just like please, a paragraph. please do. So it's very honest in here, and I do talk pretty openly about when I was a teenager and things that I did and why did it happen to her and not me. So in this paragraph, I'm talking about being at my friend's house on the weekend. And I said, we ended that night the way we ended almost every night, lying in bed in Julia's room, watching X-Files, drinking Pepsis, smoking cigarettes. We talked and laughed. If it were 10 years later that all of this was happening, I could have texted my sisters and said, good night, I love you. I could have FaceTimed them to include them. I held them in my hearts these nights when we were apart. After Julia fell asleep, I wondered where they were, what they were doing, who they were with. I'll call them in the morning, I'd tell myself. I'll call them and plan something fun just with them. Time goes by so fast. Things come up and life gets in the way of the important things. I felt guilty a lot of the time. Guilty that I didn't spend more time home with them or doing anything with them at all. Sometimes we look back on life and say all the things we would have done differently. But the truth is, anything done differently would have changed the course for everyone. We can't think that way. I can't think if I were home more, we would still all be together, because I don't even know if it's true. I do wonder about it, though, late at night when I still miss my sister, wishing I could call her and say I love you. I wonder if I could have just dealt with the craziness and the fighting and the frustrations and tensions that hung so thick in the air you could cut them with a knife. Would she still be here, my beautiful, funny, sweet sister? 
Mostly I wonder why things turned out so differently for her than for me. I ran around and did things I shouldn't have too. I made bad choices. My life didn't get the best of me though. I didn't become an addict. Why does it happen to some people and not others? Why didn't I become an alcoholic? How come I could stop the things that I experimented with, but she couldn't? That's what keeps me up at night. It's a great yeah. question. Well, that's uh, that's a major question for all of us. You know, if we can try to figure that out. John Lennon, your your reading remind me of John Lennon's line. You know, life is what happens to you when you're making other plans. I mean, it is important to be in the moment. Right. And we know, you know, we know the numbers. You start using drugs or alcohol after the age of 21, one out of 25 people risk for lifelong addiction. Start using before the age of 18, it's one in four. Right. And we're not sure about that number between 18 and 21. But it's got to be somewhere between one in four and one in 25. So why? Why is this person that one? And we don't know yet. We really don't know. So... From my point of view, that's why we're going to treat everyone and why we're just asking kids, just wait. Right. You know, just wait. I want to come back to the book in a moment because it's opened up so many issues. And how do we get help? So I wanted to just turn over to Jen for a moment and Marshall Facts. So you've been hearing this. How how would you help? What can we do to provide resources, put people in the right direction? Yeah. Where do we go with this? A really important resource that uh, Marshfield Facts was able to help save for Marshfield residents is the uh, William uh, James College Interface Referral Program. Are you familiar with no, that one, Dr. About, Joe? Tell us, tell us about that. Uh, so William James College used to be called Massachusetts College of Psychiatry or something. Some, is, is this one just up in Newton? Area? Yes. Oh, my uh, gosh. Uh, David Herzog uh, is a professor of psychiatry who's up there who's absolutely involved in this. David, I, you know what, Mark, let's, let's make David a note of this. Show. Get David Herzog yeah. on this show. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yeah. So the telephone number, I will give it out, is 888-244-6843. That is the William James College Interface Project number. So that is a helpline. Um, I've learned the difference between helpline and a hotline. A helpline is basically open Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. That's a regular business hours helpline. It's the only time people need help. And it's <laughs> Unless right. it's really hot. And it's, um, and then it's a hotline. It's a, um, it's, I think of it as like almost a concierge service hmm. for mental health treatment. So if you are looking for a therapist or a counselor for uh, not just addiction, but any mental health issue, and I I would like to emphasize that I think that a lot of addiction is self-medication of other mental health Mm -hmm. issues. So I think think that's true. From a prevention standpoint, we would like people to seek help for all kinds of mental health issues, anxiety and depression and um, any, any, uh, it doesn't have to be all the way to addiction. You know, we want to catch these things earlier before they become so critical. Right. So I mean, can... if, if you're not feeling good, right, because you're anxious or depressed or angry, the brain wants to feel good. So absolutely you're at higher risk for using. Didn't mean to cut yeah. you off, Jane. Go ahead. So this referral program, the Interface Project, they will, you call in and they have trained um, people on the other end of the line who will 
ask you about um, what the issue is that you want help with, but also where you live and when you're available and um, what your insurance is and if you're comfortable with a male or a female provider. And they will take all of this information and help you find a mental health provider who is accepting new patients, takes your insurance, is close by, specializes in the need that you have. And um, they will help you make an appointment. And I think really importantly, they will follow up with you after to make sure you kept the appointment and that you liked it and it was a good fit. And if it's not a good fit, they help you find someone else. It's really an amazing service. And that is free to all uh, residents of Marshfield. It's also available to situate most uh, towns on the South Shore have it, but through the Marshfield Schools and the DA's office and uh, Marshfield Kiwanis again, Kiwanis stepping up to help. Kiwanis has been just Um, tremendous. They pulled together to keep that funded for Marshfield residents. So all Marshfield residents have that available to them. Can you give that number again for folks? Sure, Uh, it's the William James College Interface Project. The number is 888-244-6843. You can also Google them and um, go online. You can also do it online. But I think uh, the trained counselors are really um, skilled, and it, it's worth a phone call. Yeah, and, and you're not going to be judged. Right. You know, I mean, calling for help does not make you a weak person or a less than person or a crippled person or a bad person. Uh, it makes you actually a pretty courageous person to say, I need help. Mark, I, I'm just curious. I mean, you're, you're sitting here. Mark is rarely this quiet. <laughs> so so I, know, Mark. I know that this is, this is having profound effect. It, it is. This hasn't been really part of your world, right? Or No, and I, I really, truly hope that it never becomes part of my world, which is the intriguing part that I was listening to Katie talk about her sister and just wondering, you know, always where is the origination of it, right? So, you know, was Katie kind of experimenting in junior high school? Was she Wait, kind this of... Is Katie. I mean, I'm sorry, Katie's sister. Was she <laughs> experimenting in, in junior high school or middle school? Was she kind of a risk taker? I mean, we've had, you know, the young children, for lack of a better term, in here from the drug story theater, right. talking about being seduced by the gateway drugs right. as early as 11 years old. Yep. Um, and anxious and depressed and feeling, right. you know, less than. So, of course, you you always take it inside to your home and you think, oh, boy, how, how do we prevent this? Because I think nobody is is free from uh, the potential, right? right? I mean, from all of the folks we've talked to, Katie. So, sure, you just sit back and internalize and think, okay, how can we be proactive? right. And uh, aware, yep, and involved, and and we're not going to be able to do that if we're ashamed, right? Just right. not going to happen. Hey, we, we have a call. We have Eleanor on the line calling into the Doctor Joe Show. Eleanor, you there? Yes. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi. So, welcome. How how is this Hi. affecting you? Tell us your story. Oh, I was so um, when I heard the title of your book about the red tail hawk, it, it intrigued me. Uh, but, um, and thank you so much for sharing your stories. Uh, I won't be long. Um, I just want to introduce the fact of the family dynamic and codependency. I come from a family of alcoholics. And my specific question would also be is that when you, you know, the family bond is, you know, is really tight. 
And when you saw your, you know, that broken link and your your need to want to help and realizing that you can't help them, they have to help themselves, like what was the process? It sounds like you stayed in touch, but at sometimes you also had to let them go because you realized you couldn't do anything for them. So that's all I wanted to enter into the conversation to hear what you have to say about that. Thanks, Eleanor. So Katie, what about that? So that's a really good point. So we were lucky in that there was, my sister and I were both registered nurses by the time this had happened. So we were a little more comfortable in the medical side of the field, and we were a little more in tune to things like when, um, you know, my sister's skin color would turn a little yellow or a little gray or maybe her eyes or she'd have these marks on her arms and these scratches. And then we were like, hmm, this isn't adding up, you know, um, whereas my mom and dad maybe didn't want to didn't want to acknowledge it, didn't want to see it. You know, you see what you want to see. Yeah. Right. Right. And as we say um, in psychiatry, denial is not just a river in Egypt. That's right. It's a very real thing. So we kind of um, took turns being good cop, bad cop um, for about the whole 10 years where and sometimes it would last, you know, the whole six or seven months. Sometimes it would be a whole year where, okay, who's going to go to her doctor's appointments? Who's going to, you know, send her the clothes, the cards, go to the visitations? Because it's a lot of work. A lot of these places weren't close by. They were hours away. But we didn't want her to be alone either. We wanted her to have something to recover for. We wanted her to have a family to fall back on. Um, the love. The, the love. love. The yeah, love. So we yeah. always told her we loved her, even when we were angry with her, even in angry letters or phone calls, we always made sure so where we does said it I draw, Where does enabling come into I'm just saying I deal with some people that don't think they have a problem. They like to identify other family members. Well, that's a very common thing. <laughs> so um, yeah. we established boundaries pretty firmly, and w- we would have meetings without her and say, what are our boundaries going to be? How When she does this or she comes after this one, what are we going to do? And that's, I think, pretty common practice nowadays because we know people are going to lash out at each other. But um, mm-hmm. we were we were very good. You know, I remember like one time in particular she was at um, rehab and we wanted her to stay longer because we knew she needed it. She wanted to leave after about 10 days. And she was mm-hmm. calling me, calling me, calling me and calling me all these names in the book because I wouldn't let her come live at my house. She had already right. been told by my parents she couldn't live there and my older sister sister had young children, so didn't I. Um, but she and I were so close. So it was like she knew I was the weak link. Even though we were so close, she needed a place to go to continue to use. And and I just, I couldn't enable her. I had to love her more than, um, more than that. And it was hard. And I cried a lot. And I felt really terrible. And you just hope you're doing the right thing. Because you never know oh, if it's the right thing. you turned her away? Did you turn her away? I turned her, her away. away. Yeah, I turned her away. No, it's brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. What did you do for your support? Did you reach out to people? Um, That's a good question. I wish there was more back then. There is. There wasn't really a lot. But I did have some friends mm-hmm. who were very, very good to me, um, mostly nurses that mm-hmm. I worked at the hospital and a couple of friends that I had had from high school and in college. A couple of them are actually in the book with me because they were very, very important in getting me through mm-hmm. and helping me to know that I was doing the right thing. You know, it's hard to love people when they have addictions. It's really hard. And there were definitely times that we fought within the family, too. You know, there was a lot of anger and resentment at, at times. Now that people don't want to um, own up to their own contributions to a dysfunction. Right. You know, it sounds like your family is a little bit more healthy. And well, it's still <laughs> we had our moments. Very debilita- <laughs> it's very debilitating. Yeah. And, it and, is. But it it know, really does and, make everyone in the family look at themselves, though, and look at each other because 
there's a lot. Every family has its problems. Yeah. Every family. Um, Thank you. I always mean... say every family has a degree of dysfunction. Right. But when I look at Dr. Joe and his happy family, I have to exclude him. <laughs> Thanks, Eleanor. <laughs> Thanks. So Sorry, much. Doctor. I'm just from afar. I'm viewing you. <laughs> we so... do have to say, Dr. Joe, my love, that. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think the hardest thing about this is to not not take it personally as a family member, to not blame yourself. You know, I should have done something different. That blame for me as a psychiatrist is what I call a projection because I think on, on some deep level, the person who is struggling with addiction blames themselves as well. And as soon as you do that, there's a difference between responsibility and blame. I think a person with addiction takes responsibility when they are really ready to get treatment. That is different than blame. Blame will make you feel guilty. Responsibility is empowering. So I think we all take responsibility. You know, from, from a brain point of view, um, it is, I think, very difficult for human beings who want to feel valued by other human beings to think that this person that I wish valued me is choosing drugs over me. And, and, and that, that choice that we think is a choice, that is part of the disease. That is the disease. When somebody can be so overwhelmed by a need to use drugs that they will do that over someone that they love. And, you know, the story that, that I like to say to illustrate this is we had a kid come into Castle, 14 years old, who was an IV heroin user. And he'd been using heroin IV for a year because on his 13th birthday, his mother, who was an IV heroin user, taught him how to shoot up. Uh, that was her birthday ooh. gift. And, wow. and it's, it's a stunning story, but the mother is not a bad person. This is how how absolutely overwhelming the brain can be, overwhelmed, that you would choose that over your basic survival instinct to protect your child. So I, I just want folks to, to, to be aware of this. It is so critical that we not judge people even though we hear these remarkable stories. But there is a difference, I think, between really helping someone and this tough love idea and enabling them. And it is, I think, for the, for the family, the most difficult part of how do you really struggle with, with this? How do you really help someone? Let's, let's just do a couple things. First of all, how, how do we get the book? It's on Amazon. Okay. Yep, and it's online at Barnes & Noble. Okay. Or I have them. <laughs> or, or you have Or the them. gift or shop at Beth Israel and Plymouth has them, or you can come to the Marshfield Facts on Monday and get them. Okay. So what about that, the Marshfield Facts on Monday? What, what's going on there, Jen? On Monday at 7 p.m., we're going to be at the Ventress Memorial Library. Okay. And um, Katie will be there to mm -hmm. talk about the book. Katie's presentation, I got a sneak peek at it. It's very interesting because she combines um, data with her personal story. Mm. And I'm a big data nerd, so I appreciate that. <laughs> and um, Katie will have discounted uh, books available. So if you come to the meeting, you can get the book a lot less than if you buy it online. And um, we're gonna have we're gonna raffle off some copies Great. at the. We're gonna give some away for free. The library will have some to, available to check out. And um, 
So there's lots of ways to get the book. If, a prevention is really the number one thing with this epidemic that's happening. If they don't start, they'll never have something to overcome. And that's really the easiest way to put it to these kids. If you just don't start, you'll never have to stop. So just don't right. ever start. Um, if they don't know what they're missing, then they won't miss it at all. So I try and tell, I have a lot of parents, you know, how old are these kids at 13, 14, 12, 10? And I'm like, you know, nine, eight, start talking to your kids because this is, they're going to see it. You don't know what the parents are doing when they go to sleepovers or coaches. It is so prevalent now in society and our communities. Yeah. It is professionals, it's teachers, it's, it's just being, it's everywhere. And the kids are smart and they listen and they know what's going on. So if you're not telling them things, they're hearing things elsewhere. Um, so I like to say, use this, read through it, and then talk about it with your kids. If there's something you don't want them to know about yet, you know, that's your own discretion. I don't think it's too blatant. I, I would say like 10 and up, it's appropriate. But that being said, there are some things you might not know how to approach with your kids. And if they read it in a story, they might say, oh, how did that happen? Or what's this all about? And then you can kind of take it from there and teach however you want it to be taught in your home. Yes, I could not agree more about the prevention, and that's that's really what Drug Story Theater is all about. You know, the slogan is the treatment of one becomes the prevention of many, and uh, what we're trying to do is peer-to-peer -peer have kids talking about their experiences in a real play that's about their lives to other kids, and in between the scenes teach the brain science about what's going on and why the adolescent brain is at such risk. You know, I think on the Facebook page, uh, drug, the Dr. Joe Facebook page, I think I did say that we were going to give away a book oh. to, I think, probably our first caller. So, Eleanor. We had one of those. Guess what? <laughs> I think you just won a book. There you go. You know? Somebody you got to so, talk to Larry. Yeah. So, so do me a favor. I'll be able to sell many more for you now. <laughs> That's oh, great. thanks. So, Eleanor, th thanks so much for calling Holding On. Uh, Larry is going to uh, to chat with you and, and get your information right larry so we can figure out how eleanor can can get her book so thanks eleanor keep listening to the dr joe show appreciate it so we just have a few more minutes left tonight i was wondering if you wouldn't mind is there another poem sure that you could read to us from the book so this is a poem that um we found after my sister had passed away um and we never knew that she had written it um so i just kind of wove it into the back the very back of the book. Um, but, but we, so how did you come across the poem? What, what? It actually, she had always written poetry, and I actually had called my mom. I was at work, and I had had my first dream of my sister since she passed away. It was about two weeks after she passed. Well, and, you know, after people pass away, chill. we love to see them and hear their voice again because yeah. that's the one thing you long for. And I called my mom from work, and I was like, I'm, I'm so happy. I saw her in my dream last night. And she goes, you're not going to believe what happened. I walked into the living room this morning. I was cleaning up, and this poem of hers just blew into the middle of the living room floor wow. and was sitting there and she read it to me over the phone and I just burst into tears Ugh. because it just said so much okay. that we never even knew she had been thinking so it's called The Ones I Love The ones I love have watched me leave. The ones I love now have to grieve. Their beautiful faces streaked with tears as they mourn my lost years. The ones I love have had enough. They're tired of watching me kill myself. And in death there is only truth. They read the pages of my misspent youth. The ones I love have seen my soul. They've watched me slowly lose control. The ones I love believed in me, even as my addiction had me on my knees. So many times they watched me fall, but they never lost faith in spite of it all. 
The ones I love watched me hide because I felt so ugly inside. I hope they realize that I always cared. I never meant to make them so scared. The ones I love had to set me free because all of my misery wanted company. It was almost as if they didn't want to see that there was no resemblance of the girl I used to be. The ones I love will all eventually die, but I went first and so they cry. As they stare into my lifeless eyes, I wish I could have said goodbye to the ones I love. Ugh, wow. So she knew. It took me a lot of times of reading that to understand a lot of what she was really talking about in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But her saying the ones I love had to set me free because all of my misery won in company, that was about us and our boundaries and not enabling her and saying you can't come here. So she did understand when she had those moments of sobriety. She did understand and she felt bad about it. And that makes, you know, it made us feel bad, but it made us feel good that she understood. It wasn't because we didn't love her. We did love her. We did always have faith in her despite it all. We did always want to see her get back up, you know. So um, it was bittersweet, you know, but it was like a last message from her. So what what a remarkable story. You you have a dream and then your mom says you won't believe this. This poem appears, you know, it, it really does. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Mm. You know, the, the connection that we still have with people, mm-hmm. whether they are physically here or not. Right. And, you know, I think, not to get all like, philosophical, but I think that is immortality. You know, I think immortality is real. Mm-hmm. I remember my parents, and by having a memory of them, I know that they remembered their parents. And you can just keep going back. Well, that's why I listed her as an author on the book, because she had always wanted to write a book. It was something she loved to write. She loved to read. She loved to use her imagination. She had no children. So now she has a legacy. So when my grandchildren look up their aunt, they'll see her book come up that she helped to write and her words that, you know, hopefully helped a lot of people and helped change some things in the world. So, yeah, it is nice to know that even after you pass away, you might not physically be here. You can still make a difference. Oh, yeah. And isn't that what we all hope for? You know, that we leave the world a little better after we leave them when we came into it. I hope so. So what do we do with all this, folks? You know, we are in the midst of this opioid crisis. I'm not convinced that we are in the middle of it. I don't know whether we are still more towards the beginning. There's now, you know, word out there that fentanyl is... is showing up in weed, it's showing up in cocaine, it's it's showing up in all sorts of places, and it is so addictive. And you were saying that the fentanyl was just beginning to come out right around the time of your sister's away. death. Yep. Do you think there was a connection? Maybe. I mean, she, she had overdosed a lot of times. Um, I have her toxicology report. I know that it was not 100% fentanyl, but whether that made her more addicted at the end, if it, you know, changed her tolerance, who knows? I have no idea. I guess we'll never really know. We weren't there, you know. She didn't live with us, so. And I, I thank God for that. I'm glad I wasn't the one to find her. I'm glad that my children didn't find her. It's it's funny how kind of warped you become looking at life and the mm-hmm. things that you become grateful for. So I don't know. I just know that it's quite a coincidence. And in the presentation, I do actually go through her lifespan and what was happening during, you know, 1985 to 2014. And it's pretty eye-opening when you see the jump in overdose deaths in this country. So It is, it is shocking. And yet, you know, maybe going back to what Mark was saying at the beginning, you know, do we trace this back to Big Pharma? You know, 
opium was around a long, long time before Big Pharma was around. I, and I don't know whether we can just sort of blame it and pin it on that. I really don't. There's a condition called Asperger's. People think, well, there's so many more kids with Asperger's now than there were 20 years ago. And this guy, Wakefield, wrote an article years ago blaming immunizations. And it was wrong. It actually got published in a, in a major journal and was retracted by that journal because it was wrong. But it started this idea. The reality is that we're now just able to identify folks more. It's not that there's any, there are any more of them. We just say, oh, that's what this is. And so we know that there's certainly an increase in the deaths, but they're probably more than, than have been reported. Yeah, definitely. That's sure. the thing. They're probably even more. So, you know, we, we're, we're out of time, but in, in the two sentences or so, I don't mean to put it on the spot, what do you hope people get from the book? I hope that they get a very clear warning of why they should never go down that path. I mean, that's the number one goal. And if, if not that, if there's someone who's already struggling, then I hope they get some comfort knowing they're not alone and maybe some strength to, to overcome and to push past whatever obstacle they have in their way. Thank you so much, Jen. You too. So the book is The Story of Red Tail Hawk. Folks, please try to get it. Please be there on Monday night, and let's see whether Marshfield can rally around this. Let's see whether Marshfield can read this book, and let's all talk about it. Thanks so much. The Dr. Joe Show will be back next week. Bye, Mark. Bye, Dr. Joe. <laughs> Thank you. Did he do it for love? Did he do it for fear?